guys, welcome back to the Y Intercept. I hope that this story episode inspires you to fail fast and to learn from it and to feel empowered to be truly adventurous and authentic. I am telling you why I could not sell a piece of clothing, how I had to track backwards to something that I learned while selling cars, how I applied those learnings to my time at Google and had to relearn them yet again to understand the root of my failure a third time in this chapter of my life. So my hope is that by hearing this story, you can skip all those steps and you can apply this immediately to your own life and not have to learn it as many times as I did. And with that, we jump in. I am your host, Samita Kathari. I have a degree in cognitive science with a concentration in neuroscience from the University of California, Berkeley. I worked at Google and then I worked at Stripe and I ultimately do not think that any of those are reasons why you should listen to me. I think you should make up your mind for yourself. If there was one reason that I had at this chapter in my life, it is that I'm trying to do something totally unusual and make my upcycled one-of-one sustainable clothing affordable and accessible as those are values that really matter to me. And in all of these situations, I've learned a ton about human behavior and I'm so excited to share it with you so you can learn it too. So, as some of you may know, my path to fashion is totally unusual because I have never really cared about fashion. I am in this world because I really love to work with my hands and that's why a big part of my route here has to do with cars. And I need to explain that because I actually don't even really care about cars. I grew up in a very conservative family and there was so much emphasis on math, science, English, core subjects. Subjects that would quote unquote get you somewhere in life. And I say that because I being black sheep in my family have always rebelled against it. But something happened when I was in high school which this is gonna sound crazy, it was the first time in my life when I was allowed to choose my own elective. Big part of that was my dad was no longer in our lives and him being the person who ruled with an iron fist and always chose what we were and weren't allowed to take meant that I had this freedom to explore the world. It's a freedom through which I have fervently chased every opportunity since and never looked back. I chose to do auto gas and engine, which is this class where you basically take apart a lawnmower engine and you put it back together. And believe me when I say that class changed my life because I discovered a couple of things. One, a lot of these technologies in the world that feel obfuscated, like how an engine works, was actually so intuitive and so learnable. And I know that might sound crazy, probably to people especially who already have exposure to this world, but as a girl growing up in a sheltered community, it was mind blowing. You could take this thing apart and you could build it back together again. With your own brain, you could learn this and develop an awareness. So that was the first bug that I caught. The second one was learning how much I love to work with my hands. There was such an agency about being able to take this thing apart and not with anyone else's help, not with any power tools, with simply the physics of leverage when you push down on something, if you don't have enough strength, you can attach a long piece of metal to the end that just gives you so much more leverage. Again, with absolutely no addition in muscle power, you can actually turn a bolt. And these advances felt like magic, but they've existed since ancient times. All of these things gave me a bug and I've been chasing it ever since. So now we fast forward, I'm in college. I went to Berkeley to study mathematics. I didn't love how it was taught and that's a story for another day. But my sophomore year, I went on a date. And on this particular date, I was sitting across this guy who I believe was econ, but his dad had a car dealership and he talked about how he'd spent the summer before selling cars at this dealership. And without deliberating on the date, which is lovely, he was such a nice guy. The one thing that I took away from it was, oh my gosh, instead of trying to land these super fancy internships that everyone at Berkeley was gunning for, there's probably something that I would really enjoy about being in a dealership, being background machinery. Maybe I could work on cars again. Oh, and also I can make a lot of money doing it. I didn't know anything about sales. In fact, a little bit of background. My mom works in corporate tech. My brother is a 
very buttoned up individual. And I always figured I'd go do something the cerebral route, something that was highly structured and came with all the processes and certainly prestigious. And so when this idea to sell cars occurred to me, I knew that it was a battle and that was fine. I was prepared to fight for it. When I got home from spring break for my sophomore year, my mom looked at me and said, what are you doing for your internship? And I said, I'm going to sell cars. And even though she said, no, you're not, no, you're not, no, you're not. Thankfully, my mom at this point being a single mom was just worn down enough. She wasn't willing to put up the biggest fight. She said, fine, where? And that was the point where I realized, oh shoot, I don't really know how to get a job at a car dealership. So I called up my friend Jackson. He worked at car dealerships and said, just so you know, it's a really tough business. It's dog eat dog. You might feel kind of out of place. And I said, yeah, that's great. We're going to double down on this. Given that I didn't know how to apply for these, I was very used to kind of the corporate internship environment. My immediate thought was my best quality is my presence. At least at that time, I had so much confidence in knowing my personality rocks and the only way they're going to hire me is if they see me face to face. So although all these dealerships had applications you could fill out online, I called up every single one of them in my area over the course of a morning in Seattle and I said, hey, I'll do your online application, but I would love for you to put a face to the name. Can I stop by for two minutes of your time and just shake your hand and meet you? And then I will submit my application on the website. And they all said yes. In fact, they all gave me appointment times throughout the day, but the earliest that one of them could see me was at 4.30 p.m. and it was Cadillac. So I showed up at Cadillac knowing absolutely nothing about Cadillac. So you have to realize my family drives Toyotas. We're pretty classically functionality over form kind of people. And so I didn't realize that there was a whole culture around Cadillacs that even though I was in liberal Seattle, I was stepping into an entirely different world. As soon as I walked into Cadillac, I gave them an article that I printed out on Forbes that was titled Why Women Would Hypothetically Make Better Car Salesmen. And I slid that article across the desk to the GM and I said, this is why it's a win-win situation. I want to work hard and you have the upper hand having someone who be a female car salesman. These are all the reasons why. I don't know where I got this chutzpah from. Honestly, that girl was a boss. I think she's still here just with a touch more competence added to that confidence, but it worked. He hired me on the spot gave me a hiring packet and said, you're in. Now they don't really do internships. So it's basically signing up for a full-time job. He gave me all of this paperwork and basically said, here are the models, here's what we have. And I said, great, I am cerebral. I'm gonna learn the heck out of this. That's probably gonna come back into a later story at some point, but I did. I studied every single model they had. I studied every feature and I came back one month later and I started selling cars. I totally thought by being in a car dealership, I could work on cars and you can't. It's a massive liability. They do not let you into service and they will not let you touch them. And even though Howard in service was very kind because I would loiter a lot, he did let me use a power tool one time to take off a tire, but that was it. And that was probably one of the most important things that I uncovered, that this didn't actually ever scratch my itch with getting to make things and break things. When I first arrived, the first thing that I was told was, you're not going to make a sale for six months. That's about the amount of time it takes for someone to fully ramp up and to get comfortable with cars, to get comfortable with the sales process, to not feel bad about it. That's kind of how their best salesmen have done. I knew I wasn't going to be there for several years. I knew I was doing this just for the summer and I knew, oh my gosh, that's not going to work. I can't wait six months to make a sale. I kind of need to earn some money in the three months that I have for this summer, but I didn't panic. I just threw myself right in. There's nothing else you can really do. Now here's where the story gets really crazy and gives us a lesson that translated to the rest of my experiences. My second week on the job, a customer came in. She was this lady and had her two kids with her and she was looking for a Cadillac SRX. That is what car people would call a crossover. It's a mix between a sedan, which is one of those little four-door 
for cars, pretty typical on the road, and an SUV, which is a bigger car, sometimes a seven-seater. A crossover is something that literally is a cross between the two of them. So it's not a tiny car, but it's not a big car. It's a good minivan-sized family car, and that's what she wanted. So she came in here looking for it, and I was the first salesperson on her, which basically means when they walk in, I walked fast enough to approach her, even in my heels, to get to be the person that led her through the sale, even though the other guys had flat shoes on. I just have such a bone to pick about that because some of those guys did try to outrun me. And as someone who grew up as a Boy Scout, that was pretty infuriating for me, but it's okay. I got this customer and that doesn't mean that a sale is gonna happen. It just means that you hear out their customer requirements and you understand what they need and you try to show them the cars they'd like to see and hope they get what they want. Now she really wanted this car. Her family had only ever gotten Cadillacs and she really knew what she wanted. But as they started to talk to her and get to know her and get to know her kids, I came to understand a bit about our family background. And her husband was a fisherman in Alaska. He was only home six months out of the year. He wasn't there full year round. And the reason that he did this job is because it paid super well. The reason they needed a job that paid super well was because she wasn't working at the time. And frankly, their family wasn't in the best financial circumstance. Now, something that I didn't realize when you have a hot lead is everyone at the dealership is going to conspire to make that sale happen, even if it's not in the customer's absolute best interest. And I didn't think that it was. In fact, I wanted to be so honest with her. Look, I've done all the sales trainings. I understand that a Cadillac seems like a really great thing to have, but it is quite literally the same technology that is in a Chevy and you could save so much money if you just went next door and you got a Chevy instead. And she didn't want the Chevy, she wanted the Cadillac. Now something interesting happened because I was so concerned about what was in her best interest, she invariably just ended up trusting me more. And what I'm about to detail is where it just all goes downhill. As my sales team got more aggressive, my GM, my manager, and pushing that sale and getting her the numbers that she needed to walk out of there with an SRX, I became even more committed to the idea that she shouldn't be getting this car, that she needs to get something that makes her feel financially secure. Even in my best efforts to get her out of that dealership, two things happened. One, my commitment to do what was genuinely best for her made her even more invested in this company and in this brand. And two, because of that, she was able to look past most rationality and double down on her commitment to her loyalty to this thing that she really wanted. Even if the technology was the same, she could have gotten it for a better price and an entirely different vehicle. What she saw in this brand genuinely brought her so much value that the money she was willing to pay for it was completely worth it. And the way that we see this happen time and time again is that there are products that exist on this market that are better than other products, but they do not sell better than other products. They do not beat them out in the marketplace. And so much of this comes down to the emotionality that we have when buying. And this is a lesson I had to forget and relearn over and over and over and over again. So did I end up making that sale? Yes. Did I feel good about it? No, I felt terrible. The entire dealership was so proud of me. I'd made a sale in two weeks on that job when it should have taken six months. And I know that that's something worth celebrating, but it made me really question the kind of person that I wanted to be, especially when it came to putting a good or service in someone's hands. That was a really important experience to have. Now, ironically, selling cars is how I got my job at Google. I had applied to Google for a random smattering of opportunities throughout my time at college. Why? Because I went to Berkeley and everyone applied to the big tech companies for really just randomly anything. I think I applied to a technical writer position, but the reason that I say that is because they already had my resume in their system. And towards the end of my senior year, as I was securing my opportunities and sure of what I was gonna do with the rest of my life, which was me being on this path to being a neuroscience researcher, I got an email from Google asking me to apply to their company and I couldn't believe it. For sure spam, knew it was a virus, told myself, do not put time on this person's calendar. This is absolutely whack. 
but I did it because I'm an optimist. And as soon as we got on the call, before he even got his intro out as to who he was, I cut him off and I said, look, dude, why is Google reaching out to me for this program? I don't have a computer science degree and I was rejected from all the random positions that I applied to. And he said, we created a brand new program and it is technical, but it is also customer facing and we need someone who can talk to people. And we saw that you sold cars. I just have to take that moment, put it out into the world. It is so petty of me to gloat like this, but the amount of times that people told me, why are you wasting your life selling cars? That is so a waste of a summer and yet it was the thing that actually set me apart it is something that i really treasure it is so uniquely me to go do the thing that i need to do for myself to learn the world the way that i need to learn it and it paid off so go chase your interest and your passions i promise you the universe will put you exactly where you need to be i ended up getting this job at google and i was the only person in the program who did not have a technical degree i graduated with cognitive science and a concentration in neuroscience but i knew that i'd be able to teach myself just like i was able to at that dealership i was so happy for the challenge. I love the opportunity to learn and that's exactly what this was. So I started Google and specifically in Google Cloud. Now, for those of you who aren't in tech, Google Cloud is a part of Google where they loan out their technical infrastructure. So their data centers, their servers, their compute power to other companies, big or small, to allow those companies to basically have the power of Google technology. And to break that down even further, I will give you the example of Pokemon Go because this is what they trained us on. Look, I didn't know anything about cloud before I joined, but Pokemon Go was this little game that people got really addicted to playing and it blew up kind of overnight. All of a sudden, all over the world, people were trying to access this. And this influx of traffic is essentially like traffic on a highway. If you have a one lane highway and you have all these cars that are trying to drive on it, what happens is they get backed up. The cars end up having to wait a ton of time to drive down this road. And if it takes too long, they might end up just taking a different path, right? Like no one wants to sit in traffic. So what's super important is for that highway to be able to magically expand to six lanes when the number of cars that want to drive on this road gets super high, but then also contract back down to one lane so it's not taking up a ton of room when there's no cars driving on it. And so instead of lanes, we can think about this like being things called servers that Google has physically built. They've built these metal refrigerator sized servers all around the world, of course, filled with wires that can host a ton of data, etc., to host their own internet traffic. And they can loan those out to people who all of a sudden have traffic themselves, but of course those people have to pay for it because they pay for it, it becomes a business, and that business is called Google Cloud. Another similar example of this is when we host our photos in iCloud. We're basically renting space in Apple's data centers that they have physically built somewhere such that we don't have to build our own or we don't have to go buy a hard drive from Amazon. We can rent theirs, but we just call it the cloud. A big part of cloud offerings isn't just the ability to have people host their things on Google servers, but also have access to Google tools. And as we know, Google has built some of the most incredible stuff, right? They built Maps, they built Gmail. They've built a lot of really incredible things. And because they've built it super well, they're able to share it with other companies, again, for a price. Now, Google's not the only company that's built these massive physical refrigerators filled with wires that can host a ton of data, etc. Microsoft has done the same, Amazon has done the same, and that's why Microsoft also has a cloud that they sell, and Amazon also has a cloud that they sell. They've also built really incredible tools on the side that people know them for, that other businesses can buy to make their business built on the same high-quality technology is these huge companies. So it's a cool thing that these companies are able to share the things they've built with smaller players. The reason that I share all this about cloud is not because it's important to know all the technology in order to understand this, but because 
by understanding that technology is different across these three companies, there was a competitive advantage that some of them had over others. They had more things that they could offer and that should have resulted in more sales. But the thing that Google did differently than Microsoft and Amazon was that when I joined, it wasn't that focus on the business side. When we think about Google, we think about this really technologically advanced company, but we don't think sales, we don't think marketing, but that does exist with other tech companies. Like if we think about Apple, Apple has beautiful packaging. Their Apple stores are incredible marketing for themselves. They care so much about how we feel. So the business aspect to them, the emotionality of the sale is something that they've really included in their ethos in addition to having a really good quality product. Look again, we know that Google has really great quality stuff, but they don't have these amazing Google stores where the rest of the public can come and experience the magic of this thing that is Google technology. So it was this really weird paradigm that I ended up finding myself in where we had some of the best technology, but we were the third player in the space. Amazon had 30% of the market share. Microsoft had 10% of the market share and Google, we had three, maybe it was five, but I'm pretty sure it was three. Now, how does that happen for a company that has the best technology? I mean, if we had some of the most advanced tools, because that's literally necessary to build such an advanced company and we were willing to sell them to other businesses, why weren't those businesses buying them? I think the moment where I had the biggest flashback to selling cars was when I was sitting across from an engineer who was going on and on about how much better Google technology was and through the day when people finally caught on and realized and were willing to buy it and we would be the number one leader in this space. And I realized, oh my gosh, I don't know that that is ever gonna happen. I genuinely don't. And that's no shade to how good Google technology was. I had this realization, the more we doubled down on how good the technology was and the less we doubled down on actually selling it to people, showing them the value, investing as much into selling as Microsoft and Amazon did, it was never gonna matter because people don't actually buy the thing that is best for them. Such a big part of it is this emotionality. It is where do they see their friends buying? Where do they see people taking the best care of them, wanting what's best for them? All of this happens in the sales side. This doesn't happen in the technology side. This is the emotional person to person side that drives human behavior. And this is where it came back to Cadillac. Even though I needed that woman to go buy a Chevy, she wasn't willing to because she had such an emotional attachment to Cadillac. She wanted a Cadillac instead. Didn't matter what you told her. You couldn't convince her otherwise. At a certain point, it actually doesn't really matter what the technology is. It came down to how she felt about it. And the thing that we know about luxury brands is they're gonna make you feel really dang good about buying a thing. They just give you so much more than an actual end item. And it's the same with other technologies today. Google may have had the best technology, but until they were willing to actually put effort into selling it, people weren't just gonna wake up in the morning and automatically know that it was the best. They needed to see examples. They needed to feel that other people had also done it. And other people would be willing to do it if we doubled down on actually selling it to them instead of just assuming that people would know we had the best technology. Now in my time there, they did ramp up their sales for us quite a bit and they realized that customers weren't really being sold to and that resourcing was well worth it in order to get them actually across the finish line. How does this bring us to clothes? When I started making my clothes, it was just a way to work with my hands. I've said this before and I'll say it again, but I don't consider myself to be a particularly fashionable person. I never studied fashion. I didn't even inherently really care about fashion in terms of trends and styles. I like to look beautiful and I like to look unique, but being someone who is fairly resourceful, I would make some of my own clothes in high school. I would borrow clothes in college and then when I got my 
first jobs, even though I was so excited to start building my wardrobe, having not grown since I was 12, just continued to cycle through the same things that I had always had. And so my massive wardrobe was primarily the function of collecting stuff over a lifetime and really not throwing anything away, which isn't a great thing. But again, points to the fact, not particularly fashionable. I'm just gonna put that out there. Now, because I love working with my hands, that's actually how I ended up finding sewing. When I came to LA, I called up a bunch of mechanics to ask if I could work on cars, but I was told I needed to complete an apprenticeship first, and that was gonna be about two to three years. So in trying to find other ways to work with my hands, my partner at the time suggested I try woodworking, which I didn't like, but that same week I went to a sewing class and I absolutely loved it. That is what scratched my itch. It was just a way to noodle around with random materials and put them together and take them apart. So I have now somehow mistakenly ended up in the world of fashion, and that's okay because when I decided to sell my clothes for the first time, it was actually to raise money for a homeless shelter. And I'd gotten so many DMs up until this point for people asking to buy my clothes that I figured, okay, these are gonna sell out super fast. I actually talked to my friend who did marketing at the time for Estee Lauder, and she was pretty confident that a five-piece drop was gonna sell out immediately. In fact, she was imploring me to put it off and try to do 10 pieces because that would have made customers way more happy, but I was on a time crunch and I said, look, I'm just gonna do five, we're gonna see how it goes, and then I'll do another batch if I need to. And honestly, it killed me to try to make five pieces in one week. I will never do that again. I ended up getting a locked knee and mild tendonitis in my elbow and it was way too much work, but I finally launched. I launched with these five pieces and guess what? One piece sold, one piece sold. And even though I had all these conversations and I came to understand most of my peers buy fast fashion, even though they have a lot of disposable income, it's just not in our buying behavior to spend 10X that on this handmade upcycled sustainable piece of clothing. Because this was to raise money for charity, I didn't immediately feel personally indicted. Like I didn't feel like, okay, people don't love this. I just figured the price ain't right. That's fine, I'll just make some adjustments. And a couple months down the road, as I tried to make these pieces more affordable, somewhere in the process, I started to interpret that maybe people just don't like my stuff. I started just experiencing this massive state of confusion. This like, people don't understand it yet, but they will. And where have we heard that before? Google. With that engineer, I am embarrassed as to how many months it took me to snap out of it and realize that I was just assuming that people would just know that my stuff existed, that it would solve their problem, that it was really great quality, that it was this luxury item, and that I didn't need to do any work on the business end to share with people what this thing was, that other people had used it, how they felt about it, that it was a really great experience, that it could solve all their problems because I didn't know how to invest in the business side of it. I was so focused on this product and making it the best product that I could, just like Google in this situation, that I was never Cadillac. I never became Cadillac. I didn't understand the emotionality that people attach to the thing that they invest their money in. So I was at this crossroads a couple months ago where I was kind of just throwing my hands into the air. And it wasn't until I had a conversation with my cousin who is a 22 year old genius savant entrepreneur who opened my eyes to the fact that you're not finding the right people and you're not actually investing in and building the sales experience. You can't expect an output or a return without doing any of it. And I would have probably felt a little personally attacked by this unless I'd had this experience at Google where I had realized intrinsically that they did have the best technology, but they still didn't have any market share. They were number three by a long shot. And it's because they were just assuming that the world would know how good it was. They were just relying on their reputation of being Google to drive all of the value in it. So look, if it wasn't working for Google, why would I think that that would work for myself? And that was one of the coolest epiphanies that I've had in this process. 
So a handful of things that I've learned when it comes to the business side is you can't expect people to just find you. Sure, word of mouth is a really great thing, but that takes a lot of time. And it's why businesses invest in things like really good SEO, that's search engine optimization. For customers who are looking to buy the thing that you have, but don't know that your website even exists. They invest in things like having a great website that builds a funnel such that people don't have a lot of distractions when they come to your page and are just navigated through the flow so they can get the thing that you're able to offer them that will make their lives better. It's why businesses invest in advertising because it helps show your content to the right audience in the first place that gets them really excited about it. When I actually started to learn, I realized that for my small business, there was enough work for about 10 full-time hires from everything from strategy, branding, marketing, customer acquisition, customer success, and a whole host of other things. So as I've started down this path, I've realized that my worldview of how success is made in business was definitely misinformed, but that I was lucky enough to have experiences that could actually inform what I would need to do next. And that's the part of the journey that I'm currently on. So even though I feel like I am just starting out all over again, now with this reaffirmed awareness, I feel really grateful for the fact that I learned it at this point and not three years down the road and not after I had already given up. So my hope in sharing the story is that if you are also building something, you can learn from this and you can apply some of these anecdotes to your own life and hopefully not have to spend four months or several years of your own time learning or relearning any of this. With that, please, please, please let me know if this had any impact on you. If it did, please share it with a friend. That is the best way to support. And if you would like to share any thoughts or comments or feedback, I would love that. You can find me on Instagram at by.soom or at The Y Intercept. You can reach out to me on Twitter at The Y Intercept. You can find me on my website, which is bysoom.com or on TikTok or YouTube, which are also variations of bysoom. The transcripts will be posted on Substack. I really appreciate you guys and I can't wait for the next one. I will catch you next time.